0: Hello and welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Duncan McInnes, Investment Director and Co-Fund Manager of the Ruffer Investment Company. Duncan joined Ruffer in 2012. He graduated from the University of Glasgow School of Law in 2007 and spent four years working at Barclays in Glasgow, London and Singapore. He's a CFA child holder and is co-manager of both the Ruffer Investment Company and the Ruffer Diversified Return Fund. So first, a very warm welcome to you, Duncan, and thank you for sparing us some of your time. So in terms of the investments that you're managing, could you perhaps talk us through your investment objective and uh, what your asset allocation is?
1: So at Ruffer, we think about capital preservation first and foremost. So that means not losing money on a rolling twelve month basis, but what we really think about is is wealth preservation in real terms after inflation over the long term. We're trying to build a an all weather portfolio so that's one that can uh, deliver consistent positive returns regardless of what's happening in the market or the economy and in terms of asset allocation i think we're we're known actually as as bear market operators rougher are renowned for doing quite well in the three major crises since the firm began in 1995. You know, we made money in the dot-com, the financial crisis, and the COVID crash. But as I said, it is about consistent positive returns and trying to have a balanced portfolio. So I think there's three large constituent parts of the portfolio, or three legs to the portfolio stool at the moment. The first is inflation protection. And that that includes inflation linked bonds and gold, second is equities for growth. you always want to have some exposure to the bits of the economy that are uh, attractively valued or or um growing quickly and then the third bit is what we call our unconventional protective toolkit, and that is uh that contains a whole range of things which we're uh, trying to protect the portfolio, some of them are derivative based and uh, they also includes things like gold and uh, briefly uh, for uh,
0: some of 2020 and 2021, Bitcoin. Interested that you should mention Bitcoin. You recently had some exposure to it and made a, a very tidy profit. Why did you sell it after six months and, and had you bought with the intention of it being a short term investment?
1: <laughs> yeah, good good question. Uh, so, we, yeah, we don't hold any Bitcoin anymore. We We held it from November 2020 until April 2021. We sold it because ultimately, I think the, f- the future came early. Our chief investment officer, Henry Maxey, has this lovely phrase that excess liquidity can bring the hopes and dreams of the future into the prices of the present. And I think that's sort of what happened with Bitcoin. Uh, we we entered it at uh, $15,000 per Bitcoin in late 2020 because the macro setup was basically perfect for this idea of digital gold. You had know, the post-COVID money printing, massive deficits, failing trust in institutions. And of course, our entire lives were uh, being conducted digitally or remotely at that stage. Add in the fact that investors around the world had all these portfolio construction challenges. Everyone was desperately looking for uh, some new ideas to diversify uh, their portfolio. And Bitcoin looked like it could be that. It could be uncorrelated. It could have some inflation hedging characteristics and bring that diversification. Also, implementing it was really very difficult at that stage in an institutional portfolio with institutional quality, custody and execution. Nobody had really done it in the UK. So we felt that we were ahead of the crowd, sort of getting in front of this wave of institutional adoption, which we have now seen this explosion of investment into the space from venture capital firms to BlackRock, to Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, PayPal, etc. The price tripled (laughs) in just a few months. And we exited in April 2021 at about 50 or uh, between fifteen and sixty thousand dollars per Bitcoin, we sold in the same week as Coinbase IPO'd, which to us sort of felt a little bit like someone ringing a bell at the top. And at the point where we sold, you know, why we sold was not because it was a trade, but it was because it, it was no longer fit for its purpose in the portfolio. It had started to behave like a speculative Nasdaq stock and was no longer exhibiting the characteristics that we wanted in
0: that sort of digital gold-like asset. So in terms of the investments that do retain a space in the portfolio, just to put a bit of colour on this, could you maybe talk us through one or two of your top holdings at the moment?
1: Yeah, with pleasure. So there's there's always two sides to the the rougher portfolio, protection and growth. So maybe do a couple from each. On the growth side, that's equities. And I, I think about these two themes as Homer Simpson's investment idea. So if you remember, Homer Simpson said, that beer was the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. And I think that uh, energy equities and financial equities could be the cause of and solution to all of your portfolio problems. So these are two of the most unloved sectors in the market. But the economy is absolutely booming right now. So demand for energy and economic activity is great, and that's what benefits Banks, more loans, rising collateral values, etc. But what could derail this economy that we're all enjoying at the moment? And I see two things. First, rising energy prices, because that will be, act as a tax on, on consumer spending and disposable income. Well, in that scenario, the money is flowing out of the pockets of consumers and into the pockets of BP and Shell. Or maybe it's rising interest rates, uh, which we seem likely to experience this year. In that scenario, banks actually benefit as their net interest margins rise, and effectively the banks are slower to pass on those rate rises to depositors than they are to borrowers. So, in two of the scenarios where the economy can go wrong from its currently very strong situation, these actually both benefit. Further, um, if you look at energy in particular, we've got a a really interesting supply-demand position where supply is, has been constrained because of ESG and because of regulations. Some of these companies haven't been allowed to invest in expanding production. But yet, believe it or not, global oil demand is actually still rising, uh, despite um, uh, the energy transition. So. Um, Supply down, demand up, it's not hard to work out what happens to prices, and yet these remain really uh, lowly valued equities. So we're quite excited about them, even though they've gone up a bit and we have been, uh, we have been trimming them. On the protective side of the portfolio, I think we're sort of known for, um, for being quite creative on, on how we get protection in the portfolio, that unconventional toolkit that I mentioned earlier. Back in 2008, it was Swiss bonds and Japanese yen. In March 2020, when our portfolio was flat, when the market was down 25%, it was equity puts, volatility call options, credit default swaps. And this year, the protection that's been uh, helping the portfolio are interest rate hedges. So these are options that rise in value when bond yields rise. And that's allowed us to be up about 4% so far this year when both stocks and bonds are down. And being able to dynamically hedge interest rate risk, which is a bit of a mouthful, I know, but being able to do that has been absolutely invaluable this year. And maybe if I looked the rest of this year, I think credit protection is is maybe the most exciting bit of the portfolio for me. So those are effectively bets that corporate borrowing costs will rise Um, And uh, you you could say it's a bit like being short the corporate bonds. And what is attractive here is that you're being short the bonds at uh, pretty much all-time high prices at a point where you know the policymakers are going to try and raise interest rates and slow down the economy, which should widen credit spreads. And also, I think you can be pretty confident that this is a a position that will go up when risk assets go down, and that is a really valuable... Uh, role in the portfolio.
0: And that's very interesting. You've said that you've uh, clearly shown some pedigree over some uh, recent financial stresses and strains. How has Rough and Coat in the last quite extraordinary 18 months or so? Did, did that volatility provide opportunities for you to revise your portfolio?
1: I think that it's been even longer than 18 months. The extraordinary period seems to never end so we we've, we've made uh, around 10% in each of 2019 2020 and 2021 it was it was pretty consistent and like i said so far in 2022 we're up 4%. and what what is kind of remarkable about that is that it's quite similar to the return from global stock markets over the period but it's a totally different shape. we we haven't had any negative quarters in that in that whole period whereas the stock market has had a couple of large surges and a couple of very large declines, firstly in March 2020 uh, with the COVID crash. And then more recently, as interest rates of expectations have risen, the stock market sold off. So we're, we're really quite proud of that performance because it's come in so many different types of market and economic environment, both good and bad. Think about everything that's happened in that period. You know, Donald Trump was president. We almost had Jeremy Corbyn as a prime minister in the UK. Then Boris Johnson won and got Brexit done, finally, sort of. Then, of course, we had coronavirus and the coronavirus crash. Then we had the spectacular monetary policy response to all of that and the economic change that came with it. And now we've got the geopolitical troubles and possibly a completely transformed monetary policy environment. And through all of that, I think for our performance to have been good, that sort of double-digit returns, but also to do it without much volatility, uh, we're, we're pleased with. And in terms of has it given us the opportunity? Yes, lo- lots of opportunity. The three main constituent parts of the portfolio have stayed the same. But with all that volatility, what has changed is, is our ability to sort of um, you know, add to equities upon weakness or take some equities off the table as the market rose and, and size the three different segments differently, um, depending on the risks and opportunities at the time.
0: You recently wrote an article on inflation volatility, Duncan. You mentioned that inflation has been waiting in the wings for a long time. Why is that so, do you think? That is a big question. So if
1: you you think back to pre-coronavirus, I think the world had two massive secular problems. There was too much debt and too little growth. And post-coronavirus, there is... Even more debt because of all the government spending and deficits that were run. And now at least we do have a significant amount of growth to go alongside it. But it's long been our view that the least painful solution to the problem of too much debt was to inflate it away. And ultimately, there's only so many ways you can tackle a debt crisis. You can grow your way out of it. You can try austerity, which is sort of politically uh, unpalatable, unacceptable these days, or you can have inflation. And it just seems very obvious to us that we're moving towards a world of manufactured, sort of stimulated growth and inflation. And those two in combination will erode the value of debt. And this concept of financial repression is, uh, is pretty important. So financial repression is where you hold interest rates below the rate of inflation, And we've had that for the last decade with interest rates at zero and inflation at two or three. But we've got it to a pretty extreme degree today with inflation at five, six, seven and interest rates still near zero. And that process slowly erodes uh, the purchasing power of money and acts as a bailout really to debtors at the expense of savers.
0: You also mentioned that conventional portfolios are vulnerable in the current environment. As such, what's your outlook? For the rest of the year, and, and how are you positioned on top of what you've already mentioned around your, your investment thesis? First
1: of all, what do I mean by vulnerable? Well, we mean low expected returns across the board from bonds, where we mechanically know that the returns will be very low, to equities, where we suspect the returns will be, will be very low, and we're not alone in saying that. Worse, you've got an increase in cross-asset correlations, which means that your diversified portfolio is not as diversified as you might think or as you might want it to be. And we're actually we're seeing a lot of this year to date. If you look so, so far this year, stocks and bonds are both down, and diversified portfolios are really struggling. And then you face this bigger question of why do you own bonds in the first place? And I would say that there are three reasons why people own bonds, income, protection, and diversification. Now, at very low bond yields, the income element is uh, is sort of defunct, but increasingly, as we're seeing this year, as we saw in Q1 last year, the protective element of bonds is gone, and Arguably, the diversification element is gone too because there's a lot of data that shows that in a higher inflation environment, stocks and bonds are positively correlated. So that is why portfolios are vulnerable and deeply challenged. And so why do we think or what what can investors do about it? How are we positioned? I think there's a few shorthand rules to sort of explain what people should do. And this is not a tactical thing. This is not about six to 12 months, how to get through 2022. We think this is about a strategic, how do you get through the next decade of financial repression? And those those rules would be, you need to move from nominal assets to real assets so that you have that inflation protection. You need to move from conventional assets to unconventional mm-hmm. assets that the unconventional protective toolkit that I mentioned, uh, or even just as simple as having your equity portfolio look nothing like the benchmark, for example, having lots of exposure to industrials, value stocks, energy stocks that will benefit from higher nominal GDP growth and inflation. And then also accepting that you probably need to be more tactical and nimble. Than and, and less strategic in your asset allocation. Because if returns aren't going to be there on a sort of buy and hold basis, then you need to manufacture them by, by being more adaptive in your portfolio construction
0: fascinating insight and clearly backed up and proven by the uh, the more recent performances you mentioned, of your portfolios. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. So many thanks again for your time, Duncan, and for your valuable insights. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe. And of course, you can find much more, by the way, of investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back soon with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now.